welcome to episode one. It should be like 276. 276, yeah. 276 <laughs> of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm, and this is going to be the Schmidt Cassegrain versus Dobsonian episode. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love controversy and looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So in this episode, Shane, we're going to talk about um, the difference and and our recommendation uh, between Schmidt-Cassegrain's and Dobsonian telescopes, and which one uh, might be right for you, the listener, because uh, we tend to get uh, some questions on this. We had a really good question this week, and I thought it might make uh, a good central theme for this episode. Yeah, yeah. But before we get into this heavyweight battle, um, <laughs> we we have one new Patreon uh, supporter to thank. Just came in this morning, actually. Okay. Uh, so thanks, Gene. Appreciate the the uh, Patreon support. Um, and as always, we appreciate all of our Patreon supporters, and we also really enjoy getting the emails that we get from our listeners of, you know, observing reports and just uh, general conversations. So uh, thanks, uh, thanks for all of that. Yeah, I saw we had some emails there. I didn't uh, click on the Patreon ones, but I see there's another one from Otto, who is also a new Patreon supporter. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, good call. I uh, I should delete some of these messages out of my inbox. It's uh, becoming untenable. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And so what we do, folks, is we have the emails um, from actual astronomy forwarded to our own personal inboxes, and that's why often you'll just get emails directly back from one or, or the both of us. Um, and because of that, sometimes we get kind of a glut and it's, and it's great to hear from listeners. And in fact, I think I had 12 or 15 emails in my inbox this morning. And I would say that 10 of those were from listeners or these, uh, these new Patreon supporters. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly appreciate the emails and we certainly appreciate the Patreon support. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. We're talking about getting some new gear, maybe to try a few things out that uh, actually Gene had uh, suggested. So, yeah, it'll be exciting. Yeah, excited for that for sure. All right. So, we do we have it. do we have odds on who's going to win this battle? Like, if somebody was betting, do we have you know a, a two to one favorite or anything like that? I really don't know. I really okay. don't know. Okay. <laughs> and just just as we get going here, and one of the people who wrote us this morning was uh, Felipe. And uh, did you see that photo that I put in the top of the notes? Yeah, yeah, that looks quite nice. A beautiful beach in Brazil somewhere. He was he was listening to us talk about all our bad, cloudy, cold weather, and yeah. and so kindly sent us that photo. <laughs> I say yeah. that because we Felipe and I chat a lot. I think this was sent at least a little bit in jest, but as well, like he's always sending me these amazing photos of, uh, of Brazil. And this looks like if you can imagine the most beautiful beach of all time with sun umbrellas set up uh, to keep the heat off people and that sort of thing. Uh, this is, this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is uh, super appealing to people living in our province this time of the year. <laughs> a lot of people that live in Saskatchewan, will uh, often uh, choose warm weather vacations and, and go to destinations like this to mm. uh, escape the cold for a week or two. Yeah, exactly. So how was your week, Shane? What did you, did you get any observing? And it was clear last night and it was warmer. Yeah. So it was, and clear two days ago, three days ago, I had full intentions of observing last night because the yeah. forecast was looking favorable. 
Um, but I, I see you have it in the notes here too. Our city is hosting the Grey Cup, which is mm-hmm. uh, for anybody that does not know, we have uh, a Canadian Football League, and the Grey Cup is the end of season championship game. And uh, you know, if there's a, an analog for this, it would be, you know, like the World Cup final, maybe or um, the lower the Super Oakland. Bowl. The Lower Oakland Roller Derby Championship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right in line with all of that. <laughs> so there's all sorts of festivities happening, and uh, Friday there is a sort of a work function that ended up at one of the pavilions at at the Grey Cup location or festival. Nice. And I indulged a little bit. So Saturday oh, was, uh, I was a little tired <laughs> and I did not observe as a result of me abusing my body the day before. So. Yeah. So if people hear cheers today, it's, it's not for us. It's from the game. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But last week, if people go back to last week's episode and they listen really carefully, you will hear a house explode. <laughs> do, do you think so, the audio picked that up? But. I don't know. So, so I went back through because I didn't know. So when we were, when we were chatting last week, I said, Whoa, there was this crazy sense to like my whole office shook. Yeah. And I was like, it sounds like somebody's barbecue blew up a few houses down. Um, but it wasn't, it was actually a house, a vacant house exploding. Nobody was injured and there was a vacant house and, uh, and the gas line somehow ignited and it, uh, it completely like disintegrated that house. Mm-hmm. And it was like, mm-hmm three miles from my house. It was really far away, mm-hmm. but y- you have to listen very close. And right before I pause, you have to kind of listen to it and then go back. But right before I pause, you can hear it goes whoop. Like there's like this weird little whoop. Oh, okay. And that was, it was sort of absorbed by the, uh, I think Zoom does some processing or something like that. But there's like a weird little whoop. And that was a house exploding. <laughs> well, that nobody was go. injured. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Mine folks. Yeah. Interesting, eh? So. Yes. The, Things that will happen. When, I never thought anything like that would happen when we're doing the podcast. But you didn't hear it. I feel like you're you would be about equal. It was like kind of right between us, but you didn't hear it. Eh? Well, I I record in the basement, and oh. that might be it. Because what's funny, right after that, my wife texted me and said, "Hey, did you hear that boom?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, I, I did not." But oh, so she heard it too. Okay, well, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. My wife was in the basement, so I'm upstairs. My wife is in the basement when I'm doing these. You're in the basement, but your wife is upstairs. Okay, so, yeah. So, because it was, it was loud. Like, mm-hmm. and then when I heard that, I was like, whoa. But Shane didn't hear it. But, uh, yeah, that was something, uh, something else. So, we've had, uh, had a few emails. We have a few emails coming in where people are sending in their, uh, like, how they, they record their observing and uh, we had a nice one here this morning. I was just reading, but I think we'll put that in next week's episode. So if people um, would like, we'd love to hear, um, you know, how you record or how you, um, you know, diarize your observations maybe is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah. We will do an episode on, on yeah, diarizing or logging observations. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do it. So we would like to hear from, you know, as many people as possible about how you record your observations. Um, you know, Chris, with, with the collaboration we've had with lots of listeners, we've seen lots of varying ways of doing it. Um, you know, some people do audio recordings, some people do sketches, some people use templated, uh, like mm-hmm. word documents that they just fill out. But then there's some other really creative ones where, uh, you know, people put together like a PDF document and include so much more around Gyms. the observing. Yeah. Even. yeah, exactly. So much more about like yeah. 
getting prepared, getting there, setting up the environment around, you know, the observing site. So I oh, love yeah, them yeah. all. And yeah. it's, you know, it's great to see yeah. the diversity and we would love to just do an episode about all of those different ways. And, and really, I think the outcome, yeah. Chris, is that um, if anybody is sort of wondering how they can improve their logging or maybe start logging, hopefully that will just, you know, spur some thoughts about how they can uh, uh, record their observations. Yeah, I really like um, how people uh, will transcribe their observations. I like I like the stuff that makes me want to go and observe, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and different people have like a different aesthetic, right? So, for example, yesterday we received that one from uh, Jim, and I think I sent that one along to you, Shane. Um, where Jim is, uh, I mean, he does some observing and some imaging, and he took his his images and he made them into. He called it like a calendar, but it's mm -hmm. sort of like um, a two-page two set, just like when you open a book, how there's like a page on the left and a page on the right. And then he kind of had um, sets, like in, I guess, like quadrants or something. So like four images, I think, per month um, for like the past year kind of thing. And, and then had laid it out. And, you know, it looks like a book you could maybe just buy and then open up. But I think he just did this more for fun than anything. Um, but it was, that was so cool. And... The thing that was really cool, the thing that I really liked about that, Shane, and I'll, I'll get your, your, uh, your thoughts here in a second, but is that he picked a really neat variety of objects. So like on one page, he's got something like, um, you know, like M42, um, you know, the Orion Nebula and a really great photo that he did of the Orion Nebula, by the way, it's spectacular. And then he has like the monkey's fist, one of the sharpless nebula or something like that. And he, he has this really interesting sets of objects where some of them are, are going to be ones that, you know, we're familiar with. And then there was one, there's a Sharpless object, it's Planetary Nebula down in Canis um, Major, I think it was SH2-308, I'm just calling this off the top of my head. And I was like, what is that? Like, I want to go and look at that. <laughs> like, so, so, you know, the thing that I love about these sort of... Um, diaries of people's whether it's their images or their observations is they bring objects to my attention that I've never heard of before and I was like looking at some of these going that would look really cool in a telescope I want to go and take a look at that but anyway what, what did you think of what Jim produced there I thought it was really neat yeah I think it's awesome and what I love is when people just kind of do a project that makes sense for them or enhances, you know, their observing processes. So I thought it was super interesting that uh, he went out and did that. Uh, I, again, I really just love that stuff. Yeah. And then Peter sent us a, a really short uh, email here with his, uh, his image there of Jupiter and its moons. Did you, do you want to just read his short email there first before we? Uh, yeah, I'm just pulling it up here. Okay. This is from Peter, okay. right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So uh, this is uh, Jupiter with my left to right Europa, Ganymede, Io. Uh, Ganymede is in a shadow transit. The image was shot with the FC100DZ with the beta zoom at eight millimeters in eyepiece projection. Uh, the seeing was actually pretty good, but the wind introduced noise into the image. I've installed a ZWO electronic focuser, and that really helps with focusing the planets. All the best. And yeah, it was a great image. Um, you know, the, uh, the moon detail was quite interesting, like starting to resolve some discs there. Um, but what mm -hmm. I liked about it was it was closely resembling a visual observation of Jupiter on a really good night of seeing. 
Um, exactly. At least yeah. that's what I felt, you know, like the, the mm -hmm. detail in the banding wasn't like, you know, how, how some Jupiter images can be like just incredible in terms of all of the detail you see. I appreciate those, but I really like the, the images that represent the visual observation, which, uh, I thought his did a great job of that. Yeah, no, it was really nice. All right. So we talk about Dobsonians and Schmacassagrains. We should. Yeah, let's get into that. So we had an email from Joey and uh, we're going to explore this one uh, a bit because I thought every once in a while, you know, we read a lot of listener emails and um, we certainly appreciate them all. And then um, it seems like more and more of the emails that we're getting um, really should have just about a whole episode dedicated to them. I, I think that's a fair assessment. People put a lot of thought into the emails that they send us, Shane, and sometimes I feel like we just read them and then move on to the next one. Right? And I'm like, mm -hmm. it's not really giving it the justice it deserves. And I thought that Joey's was one of those. So maybe I'll just read it and then we can discuss. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So Joey writes, hi guys, I recently came back to the hobby and found your podcast and have been listening to it on my one hour commute to and from work. First, I want to say that the two of the biggest improvements in my viewing have been your recommendation of an observing chair, he's just using a fold-out chair for now, and the contrast booster I got mm -hmm. after one of your recommendations in a Viewing Mars episode. The chair has been such a big factor in how I observe, how long I stay on one object, and how long I stay outside viewing. I hope to pick up a proper chair in the coming months. I just want to press pause Go there, Chris. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to say thanks to Joey for, for mentioning that because I, I feel sometimes you and I, Chris, are maybe coming across as <laughs> a little nuts when we talk about the importance I know. of a chair, but, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm happy that Joey discovered that. And, uh, you know, I think everybody knows that we're, we're big supporters of having a, a comfortable chair at the eyepiece. Look at Shane with the puns. You're really coming through with the support chair. <laughs> See, I just talk. I didn't even know I did that. So. <laughs> you did. You didn't when we first started doing these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I I really appreciate this too. You know, and when I'm teaching my classes, it's the same thing. Or when we go out observing, I was taking one of our listeners out observing in in October, and I was like, "No, you got to try a chair." And I, I like they, they think they're gonna I know people are thinking that I'm gonna give like these magical recommendations of buying this special eyepiece or getting this really neat piece of gear they never heard of before. And then I'm really like amped up over a chair. <laughs> and it's <laughs> really funny to see. And I know Jim is still like on the fence. Chair. Yeah. Okay, I'll keep reading. Currently I'm using a cheap five inch Newtonian that's keeping me happy while I gather quality eyepieces for my eventual scope upgrade. I, I'm just going to stop. That. I think that's great. I think a five inch Newtonian is, is an awesome, excellent, uh, Newtonian to start. Um, I meant to ask Joey, which five inch uh, he is using, but there's many excellent ones out there. I've looked through a pile. They all seem to be pretty good. He goes on to say, unfortunately I live in the city and don't plan on getting out to any dark sites anytime soon. I live in Los Angeles and it's not as safe to do things these days. And as far as clubs go, they are usually deep in Los Angeles and my location is uh, south away from uh, where they are in the city. I didn't realize how bad light pollution has gotten since I last observed. 
15 years ago, I was able to star hop to most objects using binoculars and my naked eye, but now I can't even find the Big Dipper on most nights. I'm also 15 years older, so that could be a thing as well. So I was thinking of picking up a go-to scope that I could, uh, that I would think would help me find the harder to locate objects in my light polluted skies without the need to star hop. As is usually the case, I have read conflicting things on the internet. <laughs> exactly. Some people say, don't even bother with anything bigger than an 8-inch scope if you're in the city, because the best you're going to see is a few planets and the moon. I've also read that more aperture in the city will give you views of some deep sky objects that are practically invisible in the sky. And just yesterday, I watched a video where a guy claimed you can't see DSOs or deep sky objects in a dive because of the lack of tracking. I don't mind manually pushing my scope around, by the way, just so you know. So I've been going between uh, Celestron 8SE, which is uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain Telescope, uh, Celestron StarSense Explorer, and an Orion SkyQuest XT12i. My question is, what are your opinions on aperture in the city? I know aperture is king, and most people say, get the most aperture you can afford and carry. But should I go with an 8-inch because I may not see what I'm hoping to see with a 10 or 12-inch in my backyard? Expectation-wise, I would be happy to be able to see a bit more detail in M42 than I see right now in my 5-inch, which still makes my jaw drop every time I see just a few stars with fuzz around them. Well, thanks for doing the podcast. It just become it has become my main source of entertainment for the past few months on my commutes. Joey. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, so thanks. Where, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, where do you want to start? But I was going to say, well, first of all, thanks, Joey. Thanks, thanks for the email. I really like this email because it is um, specific to what telescopes are going to work best for visually observing in your backyard. And as, as visual observing is, is our main focus here, we appreciate that kind of uh, direct question. And uh, before we say anything, Shane, I think we should say that the right scope for one person may be the wrong scope for another person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so many factors that go into uh, picking a scope and it is a, a pretty personal choice, I think, but we can certainly, you know, un unwind this a bit and, and talk about what we would prefer or our experiences. One thing I didn't put in the notes that I just want to address before I forget is um, he, he had watched a, a video about a guy claiming that you can't see deep sky objects in a Dobsonian uh, because they don't have tracking. As somebody who's owned a few Dobsonians, Shane, uh, do you want to comment on that first? And your scopes didn't have tracking, by the way. No, no, mine were push twos, uh, you know, no, no electronics on mine at all other than a Telrad. But uh, you can certainly see deep sky objects without tracking. I wonder if there's something lost in communication here. Like, I wonder if maybe the video was talking about imaging, because if you're going to image deep sky stuff, uh, mm. it certainly helps to have some tracking there because you're, you're going to do some longer exposures. But, you know, visually, um, uh, deep sky objects without tracking are the easiest to observe because they'll stay in the field of view for quite some time before you have to nudge the telescope relative to observing the planets. You know, the, if you're looking at Mars or Jupiter, you're always nudging the telescope to keep it in the field of view, like every few seconds. Um, but mm -hmm. deep sky objects, uh, you know, you can go minutes without really having to nudge the telescope, depending on how much power you're using. But yeah, that is certainly, um, I guess, not correct. You, you can see deep sky objects without tracking. 
Yeah, I hadn't thought of that actually, but uh, you're probably right. I think there is some, you know, and it seems like more and more people are into the imaging these days simply because it's it's become a very popular and uh, and I guess from what I've read, uh, slightly more affordable than it has been in the past. Um, so maybe uh, maybe something to get uh, uh, mixed up in that video, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so. Sounds like Joey uh, has had it boiled down to his choices of either an 8-inch McCassa Green telescope, uh, like the Celestron 8SE, uh, or a 10-inch uh, Dobsonian with the StarSense Explorer from, uh, and, and I think the, what that uses is your cell phone sits in a cradle and you use your astronomy software to uh, guide the scope around. And I read a review on it and it says they use Sky Safari. And then the 12-inch uh, from Orion, which is a SkyQuest XT12i, which isn't their go-to. I know they used to have a go-to version. I thought it was the go-to just because of the price, but I guess the price of everything has gone up quite a bit. And uh, that is also a push to, but I think it has a hand paddle, which will uh, display like the coordinates so that you can, uh, you know, it will sort of help guide you towards uh, the object of your choice. Let's see. So maybe we'll start here, Shane. Uh, just start with something pretty basic. So what is, I'll ask, ask these questions to you and you can choose to answer or not, or pass. <laughs> <laughs> so what is a Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope and uh, what is a Dobsonian telescope? Like how, what are they and how are they different? Maybe let's start there. Um, so they're mostly like, like just visually, if you're just looking at them, they're mostly different in terms of their physical size. Um, a Dobsonian tube will be much longer than a Cassegrain tube. Um, but then it's much different once you look at the optical design of the telescope. So uh, a Dobsonian has a big primary mirror at the bottom of the tube. It collects all of the light. It focuses it up to a diagonal, which is a, another mirror that's at a 45 degree angle. Um, and that secondary mirror bounces the light up into the eyepiece. Um, and then, you know, off you go observing. Um, now a Cassegrain comes in the side of the tube. Yeah. Yeah. And now a Cassegrain is, um, has some similarities. It has a big primary mirror at the back to gather light, um, that then bounces up to a corrector plate. And then it comes back to the, uh, like to the, I guess, you know, I'd call it the bottom end of the tube where the primary mirror is. And then you have a diagonal mm -hmm. in the back of the Cassegrain rather than at the, so a Newtonian, it's more say at the entrance point to the tube, you know, is where the focuser would be in the eyepiece. Mm -hmm. Cassegrain's at the back. Um, and then the other big factor is the Cassegrain has um, like a glass lens, essentially, at the very front of it as well, um, which does some correcting, I believe. So there's, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, a the, the Cassegrain system is a more complex optical system. Um, it has some advantages and it maybe has some things that aren't as good, uh, compared to the Dobsonian. Um, sorry, just had to mute as I was coughing there. No worries. Um, Here, the other thing me... too is a, a, a Dobsonian will be a little bit faster in terms of optics, usually in that F5 to F6 range, whereas a Cassegrain is probably F10 to 12. Yeah. And the, the Cassegrains are almost universally going to be on a tripod or something like that. And, and the Dobsonians are, uh, are in like a Lazy Susan uh, cradle type of apparatus that, uh, that you can kind of swing around the sky and, and point wherever you want without relying on battery power. And the Schmidt Cassegrains, although some of them can be uh, used with, uh, 
uh, just with with your hand to push around. I believe the 8SE and many of the other models that uh, that are out now um, are going to be very difficult to uh, to use manually and uh, if not uh, impossible. Because I think Shane, you and I were helping somebody set up the 6SE one night a few years ago. Do you remember that they were trying to look at? Oh, I think it might have been Mars back in 2020, or or maybe even the previous Mars opposition and. And the telescope, uh, we were trying to help them get it set up. We finally got it set up and the telescope ran out of power. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point that a lot of the caster grains will come with a, a go-to style mount. So more electronics involved. Um, what are some other things? I guess, I think a caster grain, you know, if you go just aperture to aperture, um, I don't know. I think they'd be pretty close to the same weight, like a 12 inch Cassegrain and a 12 inch Newtonian would probably mm -hmm. be pretty close. Although I feel like the Cassegrains are always heavy whenever I lift them comparatively, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they are much shorter so that, you know, is sometimes an advantage for packing and stowing and that sort of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and I think Cassegrains get a lot of attention because of their, versatility you know you can use them quite well mm -hmm. uh visually but a lot of folks buy them with the intent to do some astrophotography with them and uh yeah. you know you sort of have a, a platform there that can get you into that space uh you know in a relatively you know decent price uh because astrophotography can really uh increase the input costs into the hobby for sure for sure. Yeah. So kind of like one of the main differences between a uh, telescope like a Celestron 8SE or pretty much any Celestron or uh, Schmidt-Cassegrain that you're going to get these days and uh, and a regular Dobsonian is that the Schmidt-Cassegrain is going to have tracking and the Dobsonian is going to be pushed to. And now, I'm not sure what your thoughts are, Shane, but say I was somebody who only was running uh, planetary... Uh, observations and by the way I believe you know having spent some time in California though not in Los Angeles uh, typically the seeing in California is is pretty good or much better than what we have here where we live anyway and so um, you can really push the uh, the magnification pretty high on on a lot of nights and I think that for some people if you were only doing planetary and maybe you wanted to get into planetary imaging um, or doing a lot of sketching at the eyepiece, then um, at 8-inch Macassegrain that, that did just have tracking um, might be a telescope that one person might want to go with. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, each to their own. Um, I've always been intrigued by a Cassegrain. Uh, I've never owned one. I've had mm -hmm. Maksudovs, which are a similar design. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, again, the portability and the versatility is always intriguing to me, but, um, you know, when you start talking about trust style Dobsonians, they become very portable and, and easy to, to take around as well. And, you know, the, mm -hmm. the cost, uh, to buy a Dobsonian versus a Cassegrain, uh, you just can't beat a Dobsonian for the value that you get there. You know, the mm -hmm. 10 inches of Dobsonian will be half the price or maybe even a greater savings compared to 10 inches of Cassegrain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it might be. I'm just looking here now. I see like uh, Celestron Nexstar um, is running about $2,000 Canadian. And if then we go and look at a Celestron 10-inch uh, Star Sense, how much is that going to run you Canadian? 
let's see. Well, yeah, in the star sense, I think even has some technology on it. So it's probably even a, a bit of a pricier one too. Yeah. And it's relatively new, which tends to mm -hmm. equate to more money. So it's about almost exactly half the price. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is simply just uh, looking to, uh, you know, aim and, and find stuff in the sky and uh, have a decent sized telescope that's going to going to give them some pretty good views of whatever they're going to look at and they don't necessarily need to have tracking for for any uh, reason or another then I, I think that might be a pretty good scope for some people yeah no absolutely it is the uh the orion 12i um well I mean, let's see yeah so in the schmidt cassegrain so i think one of the big differences between those and these dobsonians which don't have tracking um is that uh, the schmidt cassegrain will be able to track the planets so like if you want to sit and do a lot of planetary sketching under high power. Um, personally, like I find that um, although it is possible to, to do sketching um, without tracking, once I get over 150 power, I really want to have that tracking. So for me, um, you know, I, I you know could see getting the eight-inch McCassegrain, um, and with the Dobsonian, you can, but it is gonna gonna require you to be recentering things uh, quite frequently, and if you lose a planet under very high power, then it can be a little bit frustrating to reacquire it. And even even if you can do that relatively fast, just simply uh, having to to go and repeat that finding episode frequently throughout the night, which is you know what I found to be uh, pretty frustrating, especially if it's like Mars opposition, and you know it's like this week. Ross chain that's coming up that really is a good time to talk about something like that is that it's supposed to be reasonably warm being into the negative uh, single digits so not too cold and here we are really close to the Mars opposition and I want to just set up and observe and do a whole pile of sketches I don't want to be setting up observing going in to get warm coming out having to reacquire then do my sketch that just is going to equate to doing some Mars observing and maybe one sketch in the evening versus when I run my tracking, I'll maybe get off six sketches in a night. Mm -hmm, so it's, mm -hmm. for me, that's going to be a big difference. But if somebody's not into sketching and they want to go out and just do a lot of observing on Mars, um, then I, I think the Dobsonian can make a lot more sense because uh, you're going to have to, you know, uh, be observing for a long time sitting and sketching to get that same level of detail out that the uh, Orion 12 or the 10 inch Celestron are just going to give you a little bit easier. So anyway, that that's kind of my two cents on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I think of these types of conversations uh, or, or even if I'm buying eyepieces or whatever, I usually come down to two or three choices, but where I start with typically is what is the outcome that I want or how much mm -hmm. am I willing to spend? Those are usually two big factors. So, you know, if we if we think about this and, you know, hypothetically, if we had $2,000 to spend on a new telescope, you know, mm -hmm. you just said that that gets you, what, is that a 10-inch or an 8-inch Celestron Cassegrain? That gives you the 10-inch. 10-inch, okay. The 8-inch uh, is going to run you close to two grand Canadian. And uh, I think the um, Orion 12i is going to be the most expensive of these three options. From what right, I, I, it's hard to get it. It's hard to get an Orion 12i price here in Canada because there's a lot of different things factored in. Mm -hmm. So what I would be inclined to do again, if my budget was was two thousand um, dollars, and the way I observe, I you know I, I like to get out to some darker areas where um, 
big aperture really excels, I would take my $2,000 and just get as much aperture as I could. So that yeah. would likely take me down the Dobsonian path. But, you know, we, we've talked about it a lot, why we don't use, like you and me, why we don't use a lot of technology when we're out in the field, because yeah. we just like the simplicity of pushing the telescope where we need to go. And, you know, there's been many times where we've been around folks that have uh, caster grains and we've seen three or four or five objects and they're still trying to align or they're having troubles, you know, with, like yeah. with the alignment or whatever. So for those reasons, yeah. you know, I would, yeah. I would definitely put all my money into the daub. Uh, just to get as much aperture as I could, which maybe, you know, just to go back to Joey's email, uh, there was also an interesting point about, you know, in a light polluted area, um, is big mm -hmm. aperture an advantage? And is there any issues using these big light buckets inside of an urban center? And, you know, from my I'm experience, really you know, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm really curious to hear what, what you have to say, because yeah. like more so than me, you do a lot more observing in your backyard under what I would consider to be um, really good representative city conditions where you're not right in the downtown core, but you have a lot of sort of built up area around you. And you've also owned like eight, 12 inch reflectors. You've owned some Max Sudovs, you've owned some refractors. So I think you, out of the two of us, you definitely had the most experience under light polluted skies. So with, with that, like that's kind of your context. So I'm really curious to hear what, uh, what you would uh, kind of recommend here in, in your experience. Yeah. So, so maybe just to start off this conversation here or this part of the conversation, um, a telescope's job is to gather light and it doesn't discern from starlight or light pollution. So a larger telescope will bring all of that in to a greater degree. Um, and I, you know, when I first started off, I just had an eight inch telescope, like a Dobsonian and that was it. I didn't have anything else to observe with. So I used it a lot within the city. And what I can say is, um, if you're in uh, a, like a location where you're able to block all of that, you know, ambient light from like street lights or your neighbor's yard light or, you know, that stuff, if, if you can have your yard itself well protected, well shielded, um, the Dobsonian actually surprised me what it could do. Like, I think I probably observed half the Messier list from inside the city um, before mm -hmm. I started going to dark sites. Now, all of those objects look completely different at a dark site because I could see so much more detail, but they were still detectable in the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at the end yep. of the day with astronomy, aperture wins on deep sky objects. You just see more detail and yep. more of those types of objects. So in the city, if it's well shielded, a, a daub can be a benefit, but it's pretty hard to get that level of light shielding to keep the like all of that light pollution out. So what I found when I had my 12 inch is I never, I never used it from the city actually just, I shouldn't say never. I did a few times, but I was always disappointed with how much light pollution this thing pulled in and it, it just sort of washed out the views and often the background of the sky yeah. just wasn't that black at all, you know, because you're getting all of this, this glow that's coming into the telescope. So where I'm at now mm -hmm. in life, I use smaller apertures from my backyard. Uh, I just find that they yeah. don't pull in as much of that light. Um, you know, a three to four inch refractor in my mind is almost the ideal backyard telescope for a, for a light polluted area. You, you can see an awful lot with those telescopes. Um, now 
probably not as many deep sky objects. You know, I'm looking at open mm -hmm. clusters. I'm looking at planets, double star systems. Uh, that's primarily, you know, the extent of my backyard observing. I, I'm not really looking for galaxies or anything like that. I'm, I'm just at that stage where if I'm going to observe those objects, I'm going outside of the city. You know, I'm going to drive at least a half an mm -hmm. hour or so to get to a darker sky. Um, and even then I'm still using probably a four inch refractor, but, uh, if I had larger aperture, I, I would be using that. Yeah. I think that, you know, I've had some of my best planetary views through the reflectors from the city. So, mm -hmm. um, like I know my friend Peter's, uh, home built 10 inch, uh, gave me the best views of, uh, of Saturn that I've ever seen. And I've looked at like Jupiter through a lot of 12 inches from the city and, you could you just get that uh, greater resolving power with those larger uh, with those larger telescopes. So, I kind of thought that with uh, with what uh, with what Joey was asking in between these specific telescopes, that uh, that the twelve inch eye would probably be the one that uh, that I might side with. And uh, I think just because you know, if you do end up looking at a lot of planets. It's going to be good, and it will show him more detail in the deep sky. Eh? Like if he can see some of M42 with a five inch, I feel like he is going to see considerably more with the twelve inch, simply mm -hmm. because he's going to have exponentially more uh, light gathering power there. Eh? Absolutely, uh, the brighter deep sky objects like M42, M13 will still look much better through the big daub than a, than a smaller telescope, even in the city, uh, even Andromeda, yeah. you know, you, you can start to see some of that structure, even in the city, typically, at least where we live, I, you know, I can, um, but, uh, you know, I think you are more limited to some of those brighter objects. Um, so I don't know what that would give you 10 or 20, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think you'd be able to see more. And then the other thing I was thinking, like like you were saying, is that if you can kind of shield yourself a bit in your backyard from from the local neighbors, that which I'm assuming he can, because if he's able to see M42 decently with his five inch, um, then then it seems to me like maybe he he is somewhat sheltered in his yard. Because I know in my yard, which is pretty open, like trying to see any deep sky objects is just an exercise in frustration. So. So I, I hardly even do it. Um, and then as well, um, you know, one can always employ things like light pollution filters um, can certainly help. Like if you want to, like, especially with um, like the larger Dobsonian, because it is collecting that much more light. So if you put in like a, like an Orion broadband filter or like a UHC filter or an O3 filter, if you're looking at planetary nebula or, or supernova remnants or stuff like that, um, I think the the filters, um, for light pollution reduction are going to give a much, much bigger bump in the 12-inch telescope, eh? Yeah, definitely. And then as well, the other thing is life is funny. <laughs> and that, and what I mean by that is life has a way of changing. So right now, Joey isn't getting out to dark sky sites. And, and sometimes that has a way of quickly changing. And, and you never know. Like, for example, um, uh, just you know, eventually connect it with one of our listeners here in the city. I actually hardly even knew we had any listeners here in the city. And I think I had an email from him once a long time ago. And then um, he came out to my class and donated a book. And then 
um, you know, I had him out at my observing site and I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, come out anytime. So now he has access to a reasonably close by dark sky observing site and hopefully we can meet up a few times, uh, you know, here and there over the summer and, and in the off season. Um, and he can bring his telescope out there and, and set it up and get some good observing in. So here's somebody who is in a similar situation and now like they're hopefully going to be able to get out and observe in a dark sky site. Um, you know, a good solid handful of times a year. And they were somebody that bought a 10 inch and, uh, and, and we'll be able to use it uh, much more to the full effect uh, under those dark skies uh, that we get here in the, in the countryside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect for that. Uh, and I also noticed that where, uh, where Joey is, is in, uh, is in somewhat like, I think within a few hour drive of, uh, of like some pretty dark skies, I think within three or four hours anyway, you got like Joshua tree and you got, uh, Mount Pinos, which is to the North and probably, a, a you know, a very brutal drive through the city. I, I don't know. I've never driven through LA, but, uh, but Mount Pinos, I think is, is worth visiting. I, I think it's still somewhat of a Mecca for amateur astronomers and uh, people go up there, I think, on a lot of nights to observe. And then uh, I know a lot of people are going to Joshua Tree now is is fairly dark. There's a few other sites that are that are around, and sometimes one has, uh, you know, has has a slight change in in circumstances, and and then it can make getting out to those places uh, a lot easier. Which uh, I think, if I had a 12 inch in that area, I sure would be eager to get out to those spots. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. So, what are your thoughts, Shane? 8-inch Schmidt Cassegrain, Orion 12i, or 10-inch uh, Celestron StarSense, which is a new telescope? What would, what would your ultimate recommendation be here for Joey? Uh, easily the Orion 12i. You're getting the most aperture. Uh, you're getting uh, what we call digital setting circles, which helps you find things in the night sky uh, once aligned. So, you're getting... Um, a little bit of intelligence in the scope that can enhance the uh, the experience. You know, if you're if you're having troubles finding certain objects, it'll certainly help. Um, so yeah, twelve I yeah. all the way. How about you? Twelve I all the way. How about you? Yeah, I think I'd recommend that uh, that as well. I just think the the bigger telescope and the, the bigger resolving power, and we'll uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll get some better views out of that. Um, and everybody's different. I know, like you said it a few times, like for us, we use the, uh, the smaller refractors and, uh, and that's, that's what we like to use. But if you do want to have that little bit more aperture gain, uh, particularly for those deep skies, because I think probably the 12 I there. And I think as well, the one thing I wanted to mention is that the Celestron, um, star sense, I've read some reviews, sounds like a great scope, but this is sort of a newer, um, telescope and, uh, you know, I think they just came out a year or so ago and just seeing the reviews in the magazines now, whereas the Orion 12i, I think they date back to like 2012 or something. They've been out for 10 years solid. And uh, it's a really tried and tested telescope. I've looked through several of those myself. Um, and I, I think probably the optics are going to be pretty similar, but at the same time, uh, the 12i has has been out a little bit longer. But uh, I certainly would be keen to see the the 10-inch Celestron star sense uh, in the field. But as as far as aperture goes, uh, a 12-inch is simply just going to be a bigger scope than than the 10-inch. But but again, the 10-inch is is still like half the price. So mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of lot of decision making there, right? Eh? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of factors. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. 
And uh, we're always excited to uh, get your uh, listener questions and your, your observing reports and how you log or diarize your observations to actualastronomy at gmail.com. And we also appreciate getting reviews. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>